giving away money is not easy. And so it's everything from planning, implementing, and evaluating. And there's 23 services within that. And uh, so you need multiple advisors to help you through that process. So it's, it's, you have to treat it in a way similar to what you would do if you were developing, growing a business. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with John Pepin, CEO of Philanthropy Impact. They're an organization dedicated to growing philanthropy globally. They do this through skills development and knowledge sharing. John is wildly inexperienced in the field of philanthropy and purpose, hailing from Canada, where he led a number of high-profile organizations. Before we dive into the episode, can I just ask, whatever platform you're listening on, whether it's Apple, Spotify, or another, please hit follow. And if you like what you're hearing also, do leave a review. It helps me to grow the podcast. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. John Pepin, a really warm welcome to Percy Podcast. Good to be here. Thank you for asking me. You're the CEO of Philanthropy Impact. What's its mission? What role does it play? Philanthropy Impact is a, a not-for-profit organization and what it's trying to do is to increase the flow of capital for good. So it's to increase philanthropic giving, social investment, and ESG and impact investing. So we operate across the spectrum of capital. Our unusual approach is not what we're trying to accomplish, but it's who we work with. So we focus on professional advisors, so that's private client advisors to high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals. So that's wealth managers, private banks, tax, legal, etc. And uh, what we try to do with them is to educate them, encourage them to support their clients on their uh, sustainable investment journey. We also have as part of our network of uh, philanthropists, impact investors, trust foundations, and charities. So utilizing a mixture of, of kind of content, um, you do some training, you do some advocacy, some thought leadership, all of those assets that you utilize? Yes, we do. It's good to have all these different types of people in the same room uh, talking because at least a better understanding. But yes, we, uh, we share intelligence, we do thought leadership, we have uh, specialized training, uh, we provide networking opportunities. Uh, we have a magazine. We have a website that has tons and tons of different uh, information on it. We do specialized dinners for wealthy people. We have a, a new program that we're starting, uh, which is called 23 Impact, and that's a um, directory of resources for advisors and philanthropists and others. And we're looking at other uh, other things as well. And we do some research. We did some really interesting research just recently on millennials and Gen Z. Wealth holders. Wonderful. Yeah, keen to get in that. Before we do, just a, a focus on the organization. So the size of the team, I think that they're dispersed. Are they how they're organized? How you get them all lined up and focused on increasing philanthropy? So we have a very, very small team. And so there's uh, four of us, plus we use a lot of volunteers. 
And uh, we don't have an office. We did have one, but we found we weren't using it. Things have really changed. It's covered. And so we work remotely. And if we have to meet, we meet in London, at usually one of our members' uh, boardrooms. And so you joined the organization in two, 2014. Just Tell us a bit about the history of the organization and how it came about. Okay, well, it started in 1998 as a European Association for Planned Giving. In 2012, uh, three organizations merged into one to create philanthropy impact. And at that point, the focus was primarily on philanthropy. And one of the big changes has been to work right across the spectrum of capital because, in effect, we're at the intersection between philanthropy, social investment, ESG, and impact investing. Wonderful. And you taking that role, they approached you, you competed with others. How did, how did it come into your sphere? Well, it's uh, an accident. Life, life has all these accidents, and you either take advantage of them or you don't. I was um, working uh, with... Um, a number of, of charities as a consultant through Aperio, and I had spent uh, six months before before I took the job helping a charity in East London, which was really effective in working with young people and getting them into real jobs. But when you uh, go in to help an organization, if you don't focus on your consultancy, of course, you have to rebuild your business. And so I was um, in the process of starting to do that when a call to uh, someone at the uh, at Philanthropy Impact because I had received a notice that uh, the uh, uh, chief executive was leaving. So I was curious about uh, why that was happening, especially in light of the uh, merger. And uh, that's when I heard about the position and uh, got into discussions about that. And Aperio, that was your own uh, for-purpose company? Yes. Focused on enterprise readiness, um, support of of for-purpose organizations? Yeah, it, it started in Toronto and then grew into uh, the United States and the New York area. And then uh, by accident, I came over to the UK. I was giving a, a speech in Western Canada to the Canadian Mental Health Association around diversifying revenues in, in unusual ways at that time. And uh, some people from Belfast were there and they were interested. So they asked if I'd come over and help them. And I had friends that I hadn't seen for a long time, so I thought, sure, why not? It's not part of my business plan, but be interesting. But when I got over, I kept getting one contract after another. So in effect, I was commuting between London, Toronto, and Geneva once or twice a month. And Aperio, basically, a consultancy where we worked with senior management and boards to help them become uh, strategically more entrepreneurial and to grow their organizations. We also took intellectual capital out of the charity, set up separate businesses, and the profits came back as unrestricted funds, and uh, did some really interesting work around social investments, including uh, encouraging social entrepreneurs in Thailand and Indonesia, and looking at the possibilities of, of social investment funds, blended finance. And quite disruptive for its time, quite unique and forward-thinking, that work? I guess it depends on your perspective. <laughs> A lot of the stuff that we were doing was um, leading edge, but as uh, stuff happens, there's a lot of people that come in and, and uh, have done similar kinds of things, which is really good because it means that we have a stronger sector. So there's stuff around strategic planning and stuff. A lot of organizations were doing that, being entrepreneurial, taking a look at, at uh, London finance funds and, and that kind of thing, 
Um, I mean, there's different people doing different types of approaches and stuff. So, and you talk about blended capital, and just just ex- explain a little bit more detail about so that includes financial investment where they want maybe a return and also have an impact. It also could in- include you know straight philanthropic money where it's it's effectively a gift. Tell tell us a bit more about how that's defined. Like when you talk about blended capital. Yeah, blended finance is really interesting, and it's, it's something that is more acceptable. But it's basically where you combine grants or philanthropic giving with social investments, and the social investment can be loans, can be equity, etc. So you might need the grant uh, or the uh, philanthropic gift to help create something, and then uh, next stage development, you might look at it as social enterprise so that you get some financing that is traditional through loans or uh, through equity, and then you can grow, grow the business. So it's like a transitional process. Uh, so it's really good. And there's a number of social investment funds now in the UK that, um, that uh, do that kind of approach. And some of the more innovative approaches to making an impact to solving some of the world's environmental and social problems often seem to come from North America. Does that make you a sort of rare breed and make you quite valuable to your, your European cousins, if you like? Do you think that the more sophisticated, well-developed philanthropic industry is, is more than a myth, like it's true? No, I mean, uh, the UK has a well-developed philanthropic giving. The amount of giving and the approach to giving is a bit different from, let's say, the US, but there's a strong, whatever, you could use the term market, there's a strong, uh, uh, a lot of philanthropic giving taking place. Social investment, I think, uh, this country has been one of the major leaders internationally around uh, social investment, creating social investment. There's a major wholesaler called uh, Big Society Capital. There's a whole range of intermediaries. And so it's been really quite effective in, in uh, growing that whole area. And we we in danger of sort of falling into a trap where we think about things like blended finance and, you know, venture philanthropy and all this sort of stuff, that it, it's, it's a terribly modern thing. We're, actually, it's existed for, for centuries. Well, yeah, people have always uh, helped other people uh, through financing and stuff, yeah. And taking you back to your earlier years, was there anything that happened in your in your life that sort of hinted that you might end up in philanthropy, focused on for purpose, focused on impact? It's hard to tell. I mean, uh, I'm sure that the values I have from my family, for example, my mother would didn't have a lot of money, but she would help people who had even less and stuff. So I had strong models that way. And... Um, when I was in university, I uh, worked part-time, and one of the jobs I had was working for a charity that was working with uh, young people under the age of 15 who uh, were very aggressive. They were having trouble at home and school, etc. So I, I had one uh, case and stuff, but that just sort of intrigued me quite a bit so that when I left university, the first job I got was in a charity, and the rest is history, as they say. What kept you in it? Is it did it excite you? Um, do you remember back to that time and think it sort of um, motivated you more than other things in your life? Or? Well, I think what we're trying to do is to bring change in the culture behavior of different organizations and people and stuff. And what kept me in it was the strong desire to bring change 
to uh, help. And also, it was fun. And uh, it was exciting at times. There was a lot of innovation, that kind of thing. It's a combination. Combination of things, yeah. And in terms of your, you know, it's probably more common for um, Brits to, to migrate to the to North America, but you find yourself coming coming to Europe and, and sort of basing yourself in England permanently. Was that a difficult transition? Um, no. The, um, the stuff I was doing, a lot of people were interested in it. I got to meet a lot of really interesting people, and then um, one thing just led to another, led to another. So, uh, no, it was fine. And... No plans to move back? What, what do you miss about North America and, and, and what do you prefer about your new life in the UK? Well, I'm from Canada, um, so I miss the snow and the cold. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of cold in the UK, but maybe not snow. No, there's hardly any snow. Um, <laughs> and um, so I, I miss that uh, because it used to be fun going out cross-country skiing or snowshoeing and um having picnics of minus 20 or 30 degrees and sitting in the sun in the bush. So I miss that. But, uh, you know, it's really uh, neat here. I was speaking Canadian when I use the word neat. Really neat here. When I started to work here, I met a wonderful person who we got when we got married, and we've been together for 23 years now. So we have a brilliant life, really great life. And in terms of focusing a bit on the, the yeah, philanthropic sector and um you know, these, these talk of, of generosity or giving in decline. There's some of the research that's coming through suggesting that people are giving less now more than they have done in the past. Would you take issue with that? Like, what, what are the, some of the trends, the key trends that y- you are seeing? Well, when COVID came in, the amount of giving actually went up. Some of the interesting trends right now are around um, unrestricted funding, and there's a, a, a movement towards that. And there's also a lot of movement towards um, doing good with money. And um, so you have people now who are looking at, okay, so we run, we give our money away as philanthropy, whether it's through a trust or whatever, but we invest in how are we doing good with our investments. So it's harm versus good. And so there's a real understanding that's growing around the fact that you could do impact investing and to do a lot of good with your money and you could do philanthropy as well. And so I think that's a, a shift that's uh, taking place here and in other areas of the world. And that unrestricted funding is often so important, isn't it? Because that's covering the, the f- sort of full cost recovery for, an, for a charity or a social enterprise to deliver the service or deliver the impact that they're trying to deliver. So important that they are able to cover for all of their costs. And, and so often uh, philanthropy was focused on shiny new projects, only the direct delivery piece, you know, the program bit, and not enough around, you know, the the back office costs or keeping the lights on or paying the, the CEO salary. That unrestricted piece also able or enables social enterprises and charities to be in control of the capital and the pro you know, the the project that they're trying to get up and up and running. Yeah, I think it's important to work in partnership with funders. I mean you have Someone like Isa Bosch out of Germany, the great granddaughter of the Bosch, founder of Bosch Industries, and she uh, has taken a post called transformal, uh, transformal philanthropy and transformational philanthropy. Sorry. So what she does is it's uh, working with potential uh, people who are going to receive the funds, and then they get intimately involved in the decision making. 
Uh, so it's not a top-down kind of process. Another approach that's really interesting is was done by Dame Stephanie Shirley, where she was one of the first uh, women tech entrepreneurs back about 30 or 40 years ago. And she uh, then, when she sold her business, decided to give away most of her money. In doing so, she used her entrepreneurial skills, but also used the venture philanthropy model. Uh, again, uh, those were uh, innovative approaches, and that kind of thing I think is really neat. Yeah. And, this, you know, philanthropy has come under fire as well, hasn't it, around you know, equi- equity and a lack of access to shared amongst a few organizations or a few people and, and not necessarily for all. I know, well, but, no, but you see- can I just address that for a second? I think that when we look at uh, philanthropy, uh, we have to look at all levels. So you have a lot of people helping people. So I live in a small village. The level of volunteerism is really high. People are helping people. Uh, they're supporting uh, their uh, local community and local activities, right through to very, very wealthy people who are giving away significant amounts of their money. And some people are actually starting to look at giving away all their wealth before they die. So there's some really interesting things going on. The other thing is there's a real shift taking place, I think, uh, with um, uh, young wealth holders, so millennials and Gen Z, women of wealth, who are looking at aligning their wealth with their values. And so they look at money for good, in effect, or capital for good. And they expect their professional advisors to actually support them in that. Uh, we did a study of 11 uh, millennials, Gen, uh, Gen Z, and women of wealth holders, in-depth study. And they were wealth holders, so um, they were making decisions about their own wealth. And it's really clear that the values-driven thing is really quite important. Uh, so, um, uh, and then people will say, yeah, but the older generation really aren't into it the same way. Well, that's not ha- true. Uh, well, there's a real shift taking place with older generations around moving to ESG, impact investing kinds of things, and, and looking at doing good as well. So there's a real shift slowly taking place. Well, actually, not that slowly now, but it's taking place. And would you be in agreement that is there's not one right way of doing philanthropy? No, there's multiple ways. So I'm thinking trust, trust-based, venture, philanthropy, traditional grant making. You know, apply and we'll, we'll consider. We'll, we'll give. All, all those things can be done well and and done not so well. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like anything else, isn't it? If you take a, a business-like approach to um, to this whole thing, then um, you have a, a number of mechanisms that allow you to do that. But giving away money is not easy, and and so it's everything from planning, implementing, and evaluating, and there's 23 services within that. And uh, so you need multiple advisors to help you through that process. So it's, it's, you have to treat it in a sim- way similar to what you would do if you were developing, growing a business, I think. And you work with advisors. That's a, a key tenant of your of your work. The sort of the birth or the rise of the philanthropy advisor, um, they exist, they have existed over the over the decades, but not on the level or number they do now, and it's more and more common. I tend to use a more generic term called professional advisors, private client professional advisors. So that includes lawyers, tax, wealth managers, etc., private banks. And these advisors can support their clients on their donor journey. You would have philanthropy advisors who specialize in that. So some of the banks have specialists like that. 
um, and there are some independents who are specialists. So I think there's a whole range of different types of advisors that can help through this whole process. So you have to have advice around tax, you have to have advice around how you're going to manage your money, you have to have advice about how to uh, uh, set up your goals and live your values and how you're going to invest in charities, et cetera, et cetera. So beyond the specialist advisors, so the you know the sort of generic wealth advisors, from the outside looking in, it, it doesn't appear to me that there is the massive incentives to encourage generosity or you know for the, for their clients to um, invest in in philanthropy or, or in giving. Like you know they they you know if you're, in terms of how they derive their income is often from uh, you know trail fees from investments. Would that be a fair? Assertion? Well, if you're an advisor, whether you're a tax, legal, wealth advisor, whatever, if you support your clients' donor journey, then there's some recent research that just came out that showed that uh, as a firm, you have six times the medium assets of those who don't offer charitable supports or planning, three times organic growth, 1.3 times due money, and higher trust levels. So from a business perspective, it makes a lot of sense commercially to actually support clients on their donor journey and to proactively do that, not just passively do that. And in terms of the the training, how much has that changed the advisor training in terms of philanthropy and, and what sort of, what direction do you encourage them to go in and I, I guess be a uh, people focus, um, but how much is leadership and how much is is guidance? No advisor will tell their clients exactly what to do. So that, so they are providing uh, support, encouragement, just supporting them in any way they would if they're setting up a business or looking at family, uh, family um, activities or whatever. You have uh, three, we have three types of training. Oh, and if you want to see some of our events and stuff, some really interesting ones. We started a new thing when COVID came in called Walk in My Shoes which was every Monday afternoon for 30 minutes. If you look up Philanthropy Impact on YouTube, you can see them all. There's about 90 of them there. We now do that once a month because we've gone back to live events. But there's three types of of training that we do. One of them is a bit unusual. We train high-value major donor fundraisers because we think they could play a positive role supporting clients on their donor journey. So we talk to them about the importance of treating donors as clients and meeting their client needs talk about the change in language that is taking place. So a lot of younger people are seeing philanthropy as a form of investment, and they take that approach. And so you have to be able to talk about business case and business language, talk about SDGs and how a lot of wealthy people are starting to contextualize their giving within that. And then we talk about how uh, you can be a trusted partner with advisors provide some of the services along those 23 services that are needed. So the fundraising thing is really important. The uh, other two are primarily focused on advisors. One focuses on all advisory types of professions, and um, it's um, looking at uh, supporting clients directly on philanthropic giving, why it's important to do this, what's happening, and how to integrate this into your service offering and into the firm. The other one has to do with the thing that's happening here in the UK around consumer duty and the fact that uh, wealth managers in the finance industry has to be customer-centric. And it means, I think, an extension of the whole concept of suitability. 
So right now, suitability, I'm going to simplify this, and I know it's more complex than this, is you sit down, you talk to the client about their uh, finances or, and what they want to accomplish in terms of potential return and then uh, how they can, what risk levels they want to manage. I think there's a third level, which is being driven, again, by Gen Z, millennials, women of wealth, and now older people. They want to talk about their values, their motivations, their ambitions, and how to align their investing with their values. And so that's another training session about how to have those conversations with clients. So we have the three types of training. Yeah, and you talked about SDGs, the so Sustainable Development Goals, yeah. and and, and li- aligning investment, you know, with values and, and investment beliefs with values. That's a relatively new trend. Like that's not wasn't talked about ten years ago when you're involved in the sector so much. Um, there's been a real shift in the last fifteen years, I think, and um, with <clears throat> the whole harm versus good discussion, the whole movement towards people wanting to live their values through their investments or philanthropy, etc. And SDGs are just part of that. So yeah, I think there's a real movement, uh, definitely a movement to uh, ESG and impact investing and to looking at philanthropy from uh, an investment perspective, a social investment perspective, not looking for financial return with philanthropy. And just in terms of your own preferences, so bear with me, but let's play a game. You end up coming into a, a whole lot of money. You decide that you're going to be a, a sort of high net worth philanthropist and um, either set up a foundation, you're going to take an approach. Um, so I'm just trying to drill down on your own preferences. So big windfall, you want to make a difference to the world. What approach would you take and, and how would you deliver your philanthropy to the world if, if it, you know, your own preferences? Um, well, I think I talked to my professional advisors, or I seek out really good professional advisors to help me with all this because I'm going to manage the money. So I'd like to have discussions about what the purpose of the money is, what is it I want to accomplish, what are my values and how I can live those values. And then I would look at probably a number of different strategies. One would be to look at impact investing where I want to use my money to invest in things that are going to bring change, just deliberately looking to bring change. And I would look at philanthropy and social investment as a, a way of also bringing change. And then the mechanisms to be used for the latter. So for social investment, I might look at setting up a social investment fund or investing in one of the intermediaries or, or putting money directly into a social enterprise. Or from a philanthropy perspective, I might set up my own foundation, trust. Depends how much money I had. If the other alternative is to put money in a donor advice fund. So there's a number of different options to take. And um, then I'd have to go through a pretty comprehensive, quote-unquote, business development process to decide where I wanted to bring the change and what kind of change I wanted and who I wanted to partner with. So, again, it's it's taking a more business-like approach. So that's what I would do. And just focusing on your, you know, being CEO, what have you learned about yourself? And then what have you enjoyed most about the role? <laughs> um, well, what I enjoy uh, as a consultant and as a chief executive, I've worked with a lot of different boards, and uh, this board is is really uh, good to work with. 
there's not a lot of politics. People are there to achieve the aims of the charity, and it's a pleasure to work with them. They're really quite dedicated to what we're trying to do. So it's all professional advisors. Basically, working with the board is one of the positives. The, the staff are brilliant at what they do, very hardworking, really dedicated. And then we get to innovate and create, and, and I always like that. And uh, we get to influence. Uh, so uh, we created the training programs. Uh, we constantly create uh, events, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, a lot of fun. Sorry, that sounds sort of doesn't sound very serious, but... Uh, you, should, you should have fun when you're working as well. Yeah, I reckon. I totally agree. And that's why they call you know fundraising. Not that that's what you do necessarily, but tell us a bit about the bit that you've learned about. You know, what have you learned about yourself? Well, I think it's reinforced some of my, my uh, values and approach. And so I think there's a real balance between trusting your intuition and working a, in a rational, logical way. And so it's reinforced uh, that um, balance. It's also reinforced the fact that uh, you try something. If you succeed, that's great. If you don't succeed, well, that's not the end of the world because you can learn from that. Or you can be looking uh, to address something. And I think the uh, worst you're going to get is a no. So you ask for something, the worst you're going to get is a no. And quite frankly, um, uh, the worst no in my life was when I was a teenager. And uh, we had, um, in Ottawa, we had three types of Catholic uh, school, high schools, two for girls and one for boys. And uh, monthly, we'd all get together and have a dance. So on one end of the hall was the band. Uh, Along one side of the gym would be all the girls, and the other side of the gym would be all the boys. Well, I made two errors, and... um, one was you don't ask someone to dance if there's no one else dancing. The chances of getting a yes are pretty slim. So that's the first error. The second error was actually walking across the gym floor, which was empty, to the other side, asking someone to dance, and then they say no and having to walk back across. Well, yeah. that's the worst no I've ever gotten in my life, so it doesn't really matter any no's I get now. Um, Anything after that no is uh, is not as brutal. It's, it's absolutely fine. Yeah. <laughs> At least you learned, though, right? So you reflected on where you got wrong. Yeah, but still sometimes you do things you shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you, if you think things through, you might ask for something that doesn't make sense. So you have to learn from that as well. But it's, it's all, life is all about learning, isn't it? And then applying what you learn to do better the next time. And how do you find managing a dispersed team and often a, a kind of virtual team that you're not necessarily rubbing shoulders with on a, on a day-to-day basis or that you get together? We meet probably um, every couple of weeks, but we're on Zoom calls together. We're on Teams calls together. Uh, we do WhatsApp stuff. So it's, it's sort of like an office uh, constantly interacting. So, yeah, no, it's, it's okay. It works well. As we work towards wrapping up, just what most excites you about the philanthropy sector? Is there something that you has caught your eye and, and you're quite excited about? Oh, goodness, there's so much going on. Um, I think there's a real movement towards unrestricted funding. There's a real movement towards dealing with inequities. Okay, whether that's uh, racial or gender, uh, etc. This is more of a recognition of that. I think that um, 
the whole shift in money for good, especially around, it's really impressive what Gen Z and millennials are, are doing with their money. It's really quite inspiring to, uh, to be involved with them. So that's sort of neat as well. Yeah. I remember uh, working for a large charitable foundation and, and Gen Z donor, so from within the corporate structure, walks through, walks through the door, phones me up and says, all very good, this charitable f- stuff that you're doing and this giving and this support of charities and you know, wonderful, but, but how are you investing your money? And it wasn't quite relevant because the money was coming in and going out just as fast, but it, it hasn't, wasn't a question I'd receive from anyone, you know, mm. an X uh, and Y. <laughs> that kind of focus on philanthropy can't be seen as, as doing some good on the side while you do some bad in, in, in the center. But it's interesting, some of the um, questions that are being asked now uh, by um, clients. Let me just see if I can find something here. So, so quite often, these are generic, but it'll give you a sense. Quite often now, wealthy people, especially Gen Z, women of wealth, etc., are asking key questions of their advisors. So advisors have to be ready. So they might be asked questions about what your experience in helping clients with their giving, what services, philanthropy services do they provide, uh, how do you develop, how clients develop and implement their philanthropic goals, questions about involving my family, uh, questions about impact of my donations, best vehicles of giving, tax implications, what kind of support, education and stuff, etc. So it's really important that advisors really understand this kind of thing. Yeah, the full, the full remit. And and probably the need for professionalism and, and training now more than ever? Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think that it's really important for advisors to be proactive in their approach, not just to wait for the client to bring it up. And that, because you're looking at lifetime giving, but also at uh, legacy giving as well. John Pepin, Masson, thank you for joining me on Purposely. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.